this was an opportunity to sort of try to go big. And so we both saw this as an opportunity to really build something exceptional. And I think have felt from day one through today, you know, that, that, that this has the opportunity, this has the chance to be something absolutely massive. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, brought to you by Startup You, inspiring and supporting entrepreneurs to make a full-time living doing what you love. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, Virgin mentor, and founder of Startup You, the regional partner of Virgin Startup, providing startup funding, mentoring, and support. Each episode features the stories from two entrepreneurs at different stages in their journey who talk us through their successes and failures. You get to take on board all of their learnings and none of the failure. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hayes, who are the number one recruiting experts in the UK. Whether you're searching for your perfect job or looking to scale your business by building the perfect team, go to hayes.co.uk, quoting Startup You. On this week's show, I speak to Cedars co-founder Jeff Lynn, whose mantra is equity crowdfunding done properly. In the second half of today's show, I also speak to Twisted Halo Drinks founder, Jess Titcom, whose products have just been put into over 200 Morrison's stores. First up, though, is Jeff Lynn, and with offices in five European cities and high-profile investors, including Andy Murray and Richard Branson, Jeff believes crowdfunding offers fantastic opportunities for both private companies looking for investments and investors alike. What started as a university project has now resulted in over 500 businesses funded to the tune of over £230 million. Jeff told me how they managed to do this in under five years. Let's start up. As I understand it, Cedars started life um, as an entrepreneurial project, part of the uh, MBA curriculum at Oxford, of which you were a part, along with um, your co-founder, Carlos. Um, As I understand it, Carlos came up with the idea and he knew that um, one of the major challenges facing the concept would be legal. So as he wanted one of the two ex-lawyers in the class um, to be part of the team, um, he approached yourself. Is, is that pretty much the original story? You know, that's ex- that's exactly the story. I think that, you know, the, the, this sort of uh, a business, or this, this play uh, in doing online funding for startups and, and other types of private companies was very much being talked about um, in 08 and 09 um, by a lo- lot of people. And, you know, the, the big hurdle a lot of people were coming across was, that it was going to be a regulated financial services business and and it had a lot of legal challenges and and I think Carlos more than many other people who came up with with similar ideas sort of spotted that from day one and said okay you know we need two things here we need tech and that 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 Carlos could oversee mm-hmm. um, and we need legal and, and that's why he reached out to me and did he come to you first the, the two guys uh, on the course with the legal background <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, we, we, I, I, he, I think he, he jokes when he tells tells me that the other guy turned him down. No, we, we, we actually <laughs> had, um, you know, we, we, we knew each other and had some mutual friends. And so, so, you know, it sort of made sense um, for us to work together on this thing. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a really interesting idea as far as I was concerned. I kind of had a group together, but we didn't have an idea. And Carlos had an idea and was looking for the right people to work with. So it was a good match. And, and your initial reaction at the time, can you, can you think back to, to what, what it was? 
Yeah, I mean, my, my initial reaction was that this is this is going to be intellectually fascinating. Like, I, I thought that this was going to be a really, really interesting set of challenges. I was at that point only a few months away from having been a lawyer. And, you know, part of why I went to business school was because I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and I wanted to unlearn a bit about how to be a lawyer and, and, and think more about how to be an entrepreneur. Um, but at the same time, you know, my mind still worked a bit like a lawyer's. And so my first reaction was, wow, I'm going to dig into the rule books and figure out how this thing how this thing might work and it was it was only over time once we sort of cracked the mechanics of it and we were really starting to think about okay well what does this mean commercially could this work is there demand that it sort of all started to unfold for me to say hey not only kind of can you do this but you should do it mm. and and how did you go about um like proving demand proving the concept for it, and how long did that take you well, you know, it's it's a great question because it, you know, we, we did everything that you're sort of not told to do or, or told not to do um, in 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 business school and in sort of classic entrepreneurial education. In the sense that, because we were trying to, you know, create something that was really brand new in many ways. I mean, they, not that you know, there there had been people who had facilitated early stage investment before, but there was so much new about this that there was no straightforward way to assess um, market demand. We couldn't mm. really go out and look at existing data. We couldn't really even do surveys. We tried. We tried to actually sort of sending out, you know, various surveys and getting people's reactions. And all they did was come back with more questions, say, well, <laughs> well how would yeah. this work and how would that work? And, you know, and, and so so to a large degree, you know, we, we did a little bit of a, if you build it, they will come approach where we, we kind of looked at it theoretically. We thought a lot about kind of how the capital markets are structured, who fills what roles, where there are gaps and said, you know, there is clear a market failure here so somebody is going to be able to fill it and it's our job to figure out how to be the ones that do fill it um, and you know it 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 it, it worked for us and I've, I've have to admit I've always been skeptical ever since of doing too much early market research I mean I think if you're in a known business and you're just you know you're opening the 18th chain of coffee shops <laughs> and feeds and you know you're, you're you know you can you can measure you know what the other 17 are doing but when you're doing something really different and disruptive and and, and new, I think a lot of it has to be done a little bit based on sort of instinct and understanding of where the pain points are in the market, um, and just a you know a belief that you know if you if you've identified the pain points right, you can build the solution to address them. Mm. And and how did you balance the the rush to get this to market with making sure it was right that it was watertight legally financially? Well, I think we we very much uh, erred on the side of the ladder. I think that we were very very keen to get every single little bit right and 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 sort of you know buttoned up before we did anything. And so you know we, we knew from the beginning that we would need regulatory approval in order to be able to launch. And and so what we did was we built out the whole platform, designed the whole model, answered every kind of question to ourselves before we even went to the regulator. And then we had a long process with the regulator. Um, and, and I, you know, people sometimes ask what, what I would do differently. And I think that with 2020 hindsight, one of the things I would do would be to tr would be to try to move a little bit faster mm -hmm. and maybe taken a few more risks during that period. I absolutely would not have launched without regulatory approval. That would have been illegal. And I don't believe in that. But I, I, I do think that we could potentially have parallel processed a few more things. We could probably have gone to the regulator a bit faster than we did. Um, but at the time, we were so sort of nervous that they would say no and how people would react um, that we were really very, very conservative about it.
And what were the, the, the timescales at the time from how, how long did it take you whilst um, on the MBA program to, to work on this? And then how long afterwards before you got regulatory approval and then, and then launch? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we started with this, you know, we started working on this sort of in the middle of the MBA program. And, you know, once we really got into it, I think both Carlos and I sort of lost interest in a lot of the academic work and just started spending <laughs> our time kind of sitting in class, focusing on, on the business. Um, and then, and, and that was sort of early 09 and we were kind of on and off there. We started full time uh, in November of, of 09, right after we graduated. Um, and from there, it was just about 18 months until we were in a position to submit the application to what was then the, the FSA, the National Services Authority, predecessor of, of today's FCA. Um, and so, yeah, that was an 18-month-long process from 2009 to about April of 2011. Uh, and then it was about 13 months um, once we submitted until we had approval in May of 2012. So roughly speaking, we were a pre-launch business for about three years, which is which is really tough because, you know, you go out and you see your friends and everyone asks what you're doing and you're like, well, yep, still working on this Still business. working on it, Never. yeah. Never heard yeah. of, um, and and yeah, so it was it was it was a long process. And um, how far into the the project originally before either of you thought, do you know what this this could sustain us afterwards? This this could be something. Well, you know, I think we we. We felt from the very, very beginning that um, this had the potential to be something big. And I think for both of us, you know, we weren't just given the nature of, of where we were in our lives and careers. We weren't that interested in building a sort of small ticking over business, not not to be in any way sort of pejorative mm-hmm. about that. But, you know, this this was, you know, we were both we were both, you know, about 30. We, we, we didn't have a whole lot of obligations on us. This was an opportunity to sort of try to go big. And so we both saw this as an opportunity to really build something exceptional and I think have felt from day one through today you know that, that that this has the opportunity this has the chance to be something absolutely massive um, you know you, you go through sort of waves of confidence in terms of how likely that outcome is yeah uh, and and there were certainly periods during the regulatory approval process and the waiting and the waiting and and, and, and everything where you know Carlos, Carlos always had confidence I would have my periods where I would just wonder if we were ever even you get to the get to the starting line but uh you know we persevered and and you know can't have you know believed then and believe today you know that this is this is this is i think for both of us our our great project we may go on and do other other interesting work and other interesting things in in life but this is this is this is the big opportunity Mm. And, and did you set out with an idea of how things would look in 10 15 years time like this is you know given that your your background in the legal industry here's the exit strategy from from day one no very very, very much the opposite actually i right. think we have always taken the that you know our our role here was to build something mm-hmm. with a heck of a lot of value and and i think in in loose terms that always meant you know build something that could be profitable at scale you know that you know you can you can scale a business but do so on a loss making basis you can be a really small business and and be profitable but if we could show that we could get this to a meaningful size however you might want to define that um, and that it could be profitable you know our view was if we get there 
the options, there'll be loads of options. Maybe some big financial services player buys us as an addition to the business line. Maybe we float. Maybe we keep operating the business, you know, as, as I mean, they, they, and, and, and even then, and to be honest with you, even today, I don't know that we've ever had that much of a concern about exactly what the exit looks like. The much bigger thing for us has been around how do we build something of real value to a lot of different people in our market? And then, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the tactics around how you ultimately monetize that will come. It's certainly been of value to, what is it, 500 plus businesses that um, funded to over, what, 230 million at the, the last counts? Yeah, yeah, that's about wow. right. And, you know, it's, it's a clearly, clearly we're on to something, but we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And, and how did you uh, initially scale the business? So if it was yourself and Carlos, how did you go about putting, putting a team together and, and working out how many people we're going to need to help us get there? <laughs> you know, to a large degree, we, you know, we, we, we hired based on what we could afford. I mean, when, you know, when we started out, Carlos and I were doing absolutely everything ourselves from, you know, Carlos, Carlos writing the code to, you know, to me going out and buying paper clips and, and, and <laughs> that's reassuring. Everything <laughs> no, and, and I think, you know, I think it is, it's, it's good. It is very good measure for that. I, to, to this, you know, today, even I, I sometimes feel almost to be guilty of the fact that I don't do some of the basic stuff anymore. It's not the most efficient use of resources for me to do so, but I, I do believe in having a business where you know it's all hands on deck and, and nobody is above any any particular task. And so it was it was certainly good that we did a bit of that. But but really, a lot of our ability to hire was based on our ability to raise capital. You know, we have this this great vision and this great opportunity ahead, um, but we had very little to show and weren't going to have very much to show for it until we had regulatory approval. So we went out to angels and some friends and family and a few others to just try to raise what little bit that we could and you know we knew it had to last us for a bit when when we would raise but and so we hired very conservatively um, and it really wasn't until we it wasn't until we knew that FCA approval was was very FSA approval as it was then um, was 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 forthcoming uh, that we did any big hiring so we had a couple of developers um, uh, that Carlos hired and I was on my own uh, in the London office and then as soon as we we saw regulatory approval coming and said, oh, wow, I think we're going to be able to launch this thing. We knew we'd be able to raise some money off the back of that. And that was when we began to hire. And, and over time, we've just continued to grow the team sort of as needs and capital, ha- as needs have, 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 have emerged and, and, and capital has allowed. And, and is that how you sustained yourselves at the time as well, um, given that you, you, you were no longer working in, in the legal world? Uh? <laughs> No, I mean, you know, we, for the first few years, we took very, very tiny salaries, really just enough to show the tax man that we were doing something productive. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, we were both very lucky because my, my wife and, and Carlos is the then girlfriend, now wife, um, you know, we're working full-time jobs and I, I, you know, and really supported us during that time, you know, both emotionally as they still do, but, 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 but financially. And, and that was, that was absolutely critical. You know, I've, 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 I've often, said that, you know, I think that people's personal circumstances, person, you know, sorry, personal life, you know, is under, uh, people underestimate the importance of that um, when doing a startup. I mean, first of all, you know, not having a whole lot of significant financial obligations like mortgages and kids 
you know, is, is helpful. It's much harder to do, to do it when, when, when you have, you know, outgoings that you can't cut off when you need to. Um, but also your sort of, you know, personal, um, you know, relationship situation. I, you know, you can do a startup if you're single, that's fine. You can do a startup if you have a partner who's fully in it with you and, and willing to, to work, um, to support you and willing to put up with all of the, you know, real unpleasantness that comes from building a business. But if you try to do a bit, if you try to start a business and also have a partner who isn't fully behind it, you're going to lose one of the two, if not both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not all, uh, roses, um, making a starter. I think that's key that you, that you mentioned that there, that, um, you know, it, it's not all nice stuff. There are challenges, there is nasty stuff in there and it's absolutely key having a, a supportive family um Absolutely. to see every step of the way Absolutely. and and how did you you go about funding the journey so far has it, has it been a mixture of, of different funding options yeah it has you know i mean i think in many ways we've been keen to sort of eat our own dog food and that we as a business tell companies the companies we work with you know that we think there are a range of different funding opportunities that you can combine depending on your stage and needs uh to sort of optimum uh, effect um you know and so we have raised a significant amount from the crowd we've had we've done two uh, of our own campaigns on our platform raised about five million pounds altogether uh, from the crowd during uh, those two campaigns, and that's been amazing. Uh, we've also raised uh, a bunch of institutional money, about seven and a half million, from uh, two significant VCs, and we have loads of angels and friends and family who've invested in us as well. So we have a, a wonderful mix of shareholders. They're supportive. Uh, they can add a tremendous amount of value at times, but they can also generally sort of stay out of the way when needed, and that's important too. Uh, you don't want, you know, you want shareholders who are supportive and 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 contribute, but you don't want ones that are sort of hovering over you. And I think we've struck that balance uh, pretty well so far. So we've, we've had a pretty good run on funding uh, uh, today. And, and how did you go about putting together um, the supporting team around you and managing to get somebody like Andy Murray on board, for example, which, which everybody wants to know about, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, a a Andy was very much a, 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 an unusual set of circumstances. I mean, we, we had heard... Uh, through sort of a, a set of connections that you know he had become interested in crowdfunding. He was getting more interested in the business world generally, having bought his this hotel in Scotland and mm. and 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 you know was interested in sort of beginning to build a business career alongside his tennis career. And he had expressed this interest in crowdfunding. And so we started talking with his team and and you know made you know you know walked them through how we worked and you know got them to see what what we think is is the reality, which is that we are by far the most professional and serious player uh, in the market. We're the player with whom anybody who cares about their reputation would want to be associated. And so, you know, they started to talk about it and socialize it some with Andy and he got really excited about it. And, you know, we brought him on board and it's it's been it's been great. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's, he invests frequently through the platform. We get a lot of, you know, deals that he sees, you know, wind up coming talking to us. And, and he's even good enough to come occasionally do things like a, a tennis clinic for, for the kids of some of our largest investors which is which is um always fun uh so he's he's been been fantastic obviously the rest of the team um you know came together in in slightly more traditional ways um but you know i think we've been very lucky
lucky in that we've hired very, very well. I've always said that the most important thing a founder can do is is, is hire people significantly uh, smarter and and more capable than him or her. And and I think I've I think I've done that quite well actually. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. That's the one thing I've, I think I've taken from from working with Virgin Companies since uh, 1994 is that Richard Branson always manages to to do a fantastic job at doing that, putting someone uh, you know in that position that he doesn't have that skill set that can can grow and scale that business. Absolutely right. I mean, I think by all accounts, you'll know better than I do, but by all accounts, you know, that is one of the things that has made Branson such a great sort of you know, business leader is that he hasn't tried to sort of keep it all to himself. He's been very clever and creative in terms of both who he hires and how he's done partnerships. And, you know, I think that there's a lot, I think, you know, business schools, if they don't already, will, will I think very soon, you know, be teaching that as an important model of leadership. Mm-hmm. Good point. And and future plans. I see you now have offices, a uh, number of European locations, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, Europe is is very much key to our our short and long term agenda. I mean, I think that you know while. Someday we would love to be a global platform. For the for, for now, our focus is on being uh, pan-European. Uh, so we're, we've got offices in Amsterdam and Berlin, as well as Lisbon, where where part of our tech team has been based all along. Um, and you know, we we may do more. There is such an exciting startup and growth uh, company scene all across Europe, um, and I think that you know the opportunities not only to work within countries um, on the continent, but to facilitate cross-border investment. Um, it's just really, really exciting, and there's a huge potential for scale there. So that's one big part of what where our focus is. Down the road, as I say, we may look even further afield, um, but Europe is is very clearly in our sights. And you know, it's funny just now, you know, as we as we talk in August of, of 2017, you know, for the, the first time in the recent weeks, we'll, we're seeing that our top three, four, five deals on the platform, the ones getting the most interest, are all coming from outside the UK at times, and that's uh, that's an exciting transition um, as we really try to diversify you know, our deal flow and investor base. That is, and, and, and equally the, the, the secondary market, um, which allows investors to buy and sell shares from each other. How long has that been going? Is that only last couple of months? It is, yeah. So we launched, we, we launched it in June, and we do a sort of a trading window, a weekly trading window every, every month. So we've done three. Our fourth will be in September. And, you know, it's off to a great start. We, we've been very um, almost sanguine about our approach to the secondary market because I think we've understood all along that you, know, you are never going to have a market in you know, secondary market and private company shares that is as liquid and as fluid as the public market. That's almost part of the point that private company shares don't have the levels of information and, and, and sort of ongoing activity around them uh, that public companies do. So we, we've never expected this to be you know, a sort of mirror to the LSE or anything of the sort, but we thought that you know, there are clearly, we saw on the platform on, on discussion boards and elsewhere, there was clearly a lot of demand on both sides, some people wanting yeah. to sell shares, some people wanting to have the chance to buy them. And we said, you know, let's build a product, um, you know, build a feature that, 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 that actually will help facilitate take this make it as easy as possible for people and see how it goes and you know so far it's just been going great it's been very warmly received and you know as long as there's demand for it we'll, we'll keep expanding it and and uh, uh uh you know making it uh better and better so you know we're, we're we're cautiously excited about it based on based on the first few months 
Awesome. And um, just just to finish, Jeff, personally, you've uh, recently switched from CEO to executive chairman after five years. Um, was was the thinking there again with regards to building the team, getting somebody in who's um, been in a similar position before to to, to scale the business? A- a- absolutely. I mean, I think you know there were there were there were sort of two elements to it. One was that you know we are now at a stage as a business where where a lot of the scaling challenges we face you know, are not unique. You know, when you first start a new business, everything is a little bit, a little bit new. And, and, and the kinds of things that a founder CEO has to face, you know, in the very early days, really only the founder can do because it's so much about the product and making it work and getting it to market. We're now at a point where a lot of the things that we have to make work are the things that other companies have succeeded or not succeeded on. And, you know, having somebody who's been there, done it, done it successfully, knows what the full trajectory looks like to me, me seemed a hugely, hugely valuable asset and one that, you know, at this stage in my career, um, I, there was no way I was going to be able to bring. So I was very, very happy and excited to be able to bring in somebody to do this. The other side of it is that there is still a lot from a product and a concept position that we need to do. I mean, there's so much, a lot of which I can't really talk about yet, but there's so much in terms of where we want to direct the business in two, three, five years and you know what we're trying to build out that, you know, you know, and I often sort of talk about it as kind of moonshots or big bets. And I really like that stuff. And I think in many ways it parallels a lot of the work I did early on. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really wanted the chance to concentrate on a lot of that. And there was just no way to do so while also trying to run the business day to day. So being able to bring in somebody who could actually run and lead the business while I could focus on, you know, some of these big bets, among other things, I'm doing a few other things too, but, 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 you know, be able to focus on that has just been great. I spent the entirety of this morning with my head in an Excel spreadsheet, looking at some really interesting data on, again, something I can't go into in any great detail. When I was CEO, I never had time to do that. I never had the opportunity to mm-hmm. sort of spend three uninterrupted hours, you know, you know, analyzing data. And I, I really, you know, I like it, I enjoy it, and I think I can add some value that way. So so very, very excited about the, the transition. And, and our new CEO, Jeff Kaliski, is, is just fantastic. Uh, he's a great guy, wonderful leader, and, and really excited about working with him. Awesome. I hope it goes uh, really well for you in the new role. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it, Alex. Wow, what a story. Um, Some great takeaways there from my interview with Jeff. I think first one is to dream big. I mean, how how big is your dream? Um, Jeff taking that company along with, with Carlos in five years, um, obviously all the planning before then, but in, in five years to... Um, over 500 businesses funded to the tune of over 230 million pounds, uh, offices in five European countries, uh, even looking at America um, as well. Um, you know, you, you've got to dream big. And secondly, collaboration. Um, the fact that they started this as a, as a project at university that then turned into a huge, huge business Um is unbelievable, really, um, and the fact that Carlos approached Jeff, knowing that he needed somebody legal on the team, and Jeff having uh, the team, but not the idea, putting those two together, and together they have managed to create this this huge company. Um, and and the last one I think is is hiring the right people at the right time. So Jeff deciding to step down as CEO and and take on another role within the company because he recognizes that. He's really good at the startup stuff and 
he needs to get somebody in to grow the business from a couple of hundred million business to a billion pound business. And the only way to do that is to get somebody who's done that before. So um, hiring the right people at the right time. Um, so I went into business with a um, friend from university. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, I knew lots of people that, you know, have business partners at the start. And there was various issues we had with the company. Um, it was a great learning curve. I came into the drinks industry with no experience. Um, so learned a lot in those first six months. Uh, probably made every mistake under the sun, um, from manufacturing to trademarks. Um, which was good because it meant, you know, when we actually kind of rebranded and launched Twisted Halo, we could really smash it out of the park. Speaking of crowdfunding, I talk next to Jess Titcomb, founder of Twisted Halo Drinks, who, having just been stocked in over 200 Morrison stores, is now looking for investment. Coming from an entrepreneurial family, Jess has gone from studying classics at St. Andrews University to launching her own drinks brand in 2015 called Lovo with a friend and co-founder from university. When things didn't go initially according to plan, Jess trusted her instinct and relaunched and rebranded on her own as Twisted Halo. With the news that Morrison's now stocking at Twisted Halo in over 200 of their stores, things are really taking off. I caught up with Jess to find out more. So I am Jess Titcomb and I'm the founder and CEO of Twisted Halo Drinks. Um, Twisted Halo is a new drinks company that launched summer 2016. Our first drink that we brought to market is um, a low calorie drink. So it's sparkling coconut water with ginger and vodka. And the aim of the company is to be a leading low calorie alcohol brand. Awesome. And where did the name come from originally, Jess? Twisted Halo. Well, that was one of the hardest things. Um, so when we were coming up with the brand, everyone thinks um, the name is so easy. It probably took about three weeks going backs and forwards. Yeah. Um, it was really hard to come up with a brand name that when consumers kind of see a product on a shelf or in a fridge, they get all the messaging across that we want them to understand without us actually being there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a case of you know coming up with a shortlist of what we felt really um, got across the key brand messages. Um, Twisted Halo for us, it's all about kind of lifestyle. So it's all about balance, um, and, you know, kind of, you know, being good, but also, you know, letting your hair down a bit and not taking yourself too seriously. Yeah, that's um, cool. So we went back and forth with lawyers as well because you come up with a great name and you think, yes, I've smashed it. And then, <laughs> you know, your lawyers go, you've got absolutely no chance of getting a trademark. Right. Um, so, yeah, we went back and forwards uh, initially as well. Everyone told me they hated the name, um, close friends and family. Um, <laughs> as soon as I, I listened to my gut instinct, launched the brand, launched the name, and then suddenly everyone loved it. So, um, yeah, gut instinct is quite important on it. Brilliant. And I, I love the name, by the way. I just kind of wondered what the, what the story was. Um, and you previously co-founded um, and the name um, of the drinks brand was Lovo. That's correct, yes. So I came up with the concept um, early 2015, really saw a gap in the market um, for people looking for healthier alternatives to alcohol. So everyone would go out and drink a vodka lime and soda, but didn't necessarily like it. Um, so did a lot of research into so- social media and found that the, there weren't many options for you know, low-calorie, no-added-sugar alcohol um, that tasted really nice and was easy to drink. 
Um, so I went into business with a um, friend from university. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, I knew lots of people that, you know, have business partners at the start. And there was various issues we had with the company. Um, it was a great learning curve. I came into the drinks industry with no experience. Um, so learned a lot in those first six months. Yeah. Uh, probably made every mistake under the sun um, from manufacturing to trademarks. Um, which was good because it meant, you know, when we actually kind of rebranded and launched Twisted Halo, we could really smash it out of the park because we'd, you know, had so much feedback from consumers, feedback from buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, it was, you know, like doing a very good research piece. Yeah. Um, and was it essentially the same product or did you need to completely rebrand um, and tweak everything from the ingredients to the branding to the distribution? Yeah. Everything. So wow. we literally went back to the drawing board. Um, I see Lovo as, um, you know, like I said, research. It was like the dummy brand. Um, yeah. So kind of took all the feedback from consumers in terms of taste, um, again, from buyers in terms of packaging. Um, you know, we rechanged and reworked every supplier that we worked with, um, the complete recipe, the formulation. Um, we improved the offering, um, you know, in terms of our messaging and what we wanted the brand to be about. And um, so literally took everything we learned and went right back to the drawing board. Right. And, and how did you go about putting the drink together itself, like choosing the ingredients? Yeah. So I um, had the concept and our main business model is that we work with third parties in the drinks industry. So we work with the um, the best possible suppliers. So the company we work with, they formulate recipes for all the big drink and food manufacturers. They also purchase our ingredients for us. Um, They act as kind of a a centralized buyer. So we achieve a certain level of economy of scale through them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really a case like from the outset, you know, talking to people, asking questions um, and getting introduced to the right people. Okay, and did you once you went from Lovo with a co-founder? How did you fill that gap of having somebody to to bounce ideas off and and plan? So initially, I worked with a consultant um, who'd had his own soft drinks company in the industry. So that was very useful to Smart have move. someone yep. um, that you know can kind of help navigate you know pricing structures um, and you know help kind of give an indication to whether the contracts I were negotiating were good ones or not. Um, so that was really useful at the start, kind of helped me get on my way. Um, I've surrounded myself as well with other people that have set up their own companies. Um, and I think that's really useful, you know, whether it's sharing ideas or, you know, bouncing contacts. Um, on the other side, you know, it's also nice to know that they don't find it easy to. And I think everyone setting up their own company struggles and has ups and downs. Mm-hmm. So I think creating a network around you of like-minded people, um, I found has been really useful. Yeah, definitely surrounding yourself with the right people. And do you come yeah. from an entrepreneurial family as well? I do. So my parents actually had an insurance company, um, which they sold oh, 10, 11 years ago now. Um, so I've always kind of had that upbringing of you know you kind of have a business and you know it's hard work but you also gain great rewards from it um so for me it's always kind of been second nature to be quite entrepreneurial um, mm-hmm. even in all the jobs i had since leaving university because um, my background was actually interior design so very far from the drinks industry Indeed. um i've always you know ran my own projects so for me it's kind of second nature 
And what, what did you want to be, some of the things you wanted to be when you were growing up? Can you remember those? Oh, my goodness. I went through so many things. I think the main thing is I wanted to go into acting, um, <laughs> which, you know, I always loved and really enjoyed. And actually, um, probably all the plays and things I did growing up, you know, transfer to be such great skills, you know, when it comes to public speaking um, and giving presentations um, and actually, you know, kind of approaching buyers and things like that. It's it's funny how those skills from your younger years actually transfer. Um, when I was at university, I studied um, classical studies. So, again, nothing to do with interior design. No, and when I moved, Yeah, <laughs> when I moved to London, I had no clue what I was going to do. I had a brief stint in recruitment um and then realized I loved interiors so kind of went into that but always knew I wanted to set up my own business and always knew I wanted a business that was going to be product-led um as opposed to a service or um technology um yeah that's probably like 90% of uh people I know like myself and my friends who went to university and none of us are doing what we actually went to university for but those skills are so transferable the growing up that you do in those kind of 18 19 20 years old is is huge I think a hundred percent and I think it's not worrying about what it is you're going to do and somehow it all um you know for me it very much kind of fell into place with the business Mm. um yeah and did you launch um whilst keeping the interior design job or did you go full-time uh, hammer and tongs at launching the drinks brand originally no i was full-time vodka a lot of drinking <laughs> um <laughs> yeah no i think it's for for me it was one of those things where it takes so much time and so much effort you know i'm trying to compete with like the big boy companies um so it is very much full-time everything from kind of sales to marketing um dealing with manufacturing you know and it's um in a day i was having this conversation with a friend the other day you know in the day of a startup you know you have like a million highs and a million lows like something amazing might happen in the morning and then by lunchtime you just feel like you know your (laughs) business is crumbling and then by the afternoon it's fantastic again so yeah yeah, that's very true and especially when someone said you know when you come home and your your partner or your your friend or your family members like how's your day been and you you kind of scale the highs and the lows you're like so was that a yes or a no was it good or was it not good and you're like well you know it's like mountains and troughs and yeah i totally get that (laughs) <laughs> yeah no definitely uh, and when you said um when you first started out you 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 were growing too quickly what would your advice be now if you're speaking to people who are starting up for the first time and because everybody's so keen to get product to market of course yeah and I think that's the thing I think a lot of times you feel like you've got to rush it which is what we definitely did at the start we rushed it and we didn't really take time and consequently made a load of mistakes, but it's probably the best thing I could have done is make all those mistakes at the start um, because they learned so much. I think um, really be focused and kind of channel in on your market, who your customer is. The biggest thing that I tell people is while you might think you know what your brand is, like you really don't, like spend so much more time working out your brand messaging your brand look, um, you know, who your consumer is than you think you have um, and get people to challenge you on it. I think some of the best things I've actually done is like brand immersion sessions. Yeah. Um, Even now, I feel like the brand is still really developing. I still think, um, you know, we've got more work to do on it before we've kind of got it perfect. But it's like anything, it kind of 
as you grow, it grows with the company and yeah. adapts and changes, um, which is exciting as well. Massively. So, yeah, yeah I think, um, yeah, spend time on research. I think that's really important before you launch. And do you hone down exactly who your target market is now? Like, do they do they have a an age, uh, a, a name, a type of job that they do? Yeah, so we've got different profiles for people, um, kind of like mood boards of who we think our consumers are. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually did all of this, I think, end of last summer. And then we've, we're just in the process of redoing it again now. And already for us, our consumers changed. Um, so really? you can okay. sometimes go into it with an idea. Um, but actually, you know, for us, we really feel like the market has kind of determined who our consumer is a bit. Um, mm-hmm. We thought it was going to be very much one type of person. But actually, um, you know, there was a whole market that we felt like we were missing. Mm. Um, and again, I think, you know, for us, your, your retailers that you get into also then determine, you know, the customers that are going to purchase the products. Um, we're still very much a female um, focused market. Um, but, you know, guys love the product too. It really caters well to people that genuinely, you know, kind of care about, you know, their bodies, care about what they put into themselves, but, you know, still want to, you know, have a drink with friends and enjoy themselves. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I was... I was um interviewing uh, Jamie Lang and Ed Williams from, from Candy yeah. Kittens uh, the other week and, and they were saying first thing they do on a Monday like 9 o'clock 8.30 is uh, all the staff in the office and they, and they literally um, try to drill down on the their customer and I think she's called Lucy Clapham and she's 23 and she wants to be in <laughs> PR lives in London you know and I just thought that's you know that's great that you know that you can um, kind of iterate you know take the take the metrics that are coming in and yeah it's going to change and there's going to be other pockets that might be number one key customer but there's also outside of that there's, but there's bound to be another two or three markets that you probably haven't even thought of um, when, when exactly. you first started and it's interesting because it really then working out who those customers are mm. once you kind of got a bit of clarity there it makes all your other marketing decisions so much easier you know where you advertise what events you do um, it does mean you can kind of be a bit more cutthroat in your decisions because, you know, you've got more clarity. So, um, yeah, I, I get it. The personal, the profiles really do help. And I suppose from where you differ with a lot of businesses is that um, taking your your product directly to the customer. So I know you've done a fair few festivals um, yeah. where you actually get to meet your customer face to face. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've my god since starting i've sampled to tens of thousands of people um i actually never say that it's my business initially because i always really want to get people's honest feedback but i think that's so important actually doing the events and being on the ground because you do get the feedback um you know so you know if there's something you need to change or something's not quite right Mm -hmm. even from launching this time around um you know our labels we actually um we changed on this next production we changed the font color um, you know, so it's, it, there's loads of feedback that I think you get by being on the ground with customers, yeah. um, you know, that really does help. And, you know, they give you great ideas. And the big thing as well, you just never know who you're going to meet. Um, mm. so we've made some great contacts at events. Um, we've received funding from people that have then become investors, oh, wow. um, really? you know, all sorts. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. And how, 
especially hitting the festival scene. Um, how has it changed? That how do you market alcohol as, as part of a healthy lifestyle? Because I know you know a lot of the messaging that comes across from your brand is the fact that um, I believe it's ninety calories yeah. per drink, and it is very much playing on that um, that healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So for us, it's I mean you can never market alcohol as healthy, um, mm. and you know we're always very careful that we kind of you know are encouraging you know responsible drinking. But for us, it's all about meeting the demands of consumers, um, and you know looking at kind of how people want to live their lifestyles. And you know for us, it's very much about having a balanced lifestyle. So you know you might have kind of you know worked out or you've been dashing around and you just want you know lighter alcohol and that's really where we fit in. Yeah. Um, you know we we say you know there's always a time for you know red wine or champagne or you know there's a time when you want to like completely blow out with friends so, you know it might be a night of shots. Um, but then there's also the times when twisted halo really fits into your lifestyle. Um, and for us it was about offering a healthier alternative on the market as opposed to you know the really sugary mixed drinks. Mm. Or, you know, having a cocktail that's, you know, laden with sugar again. So, um, yeah, for us, it's very much about balance. And that's what we try to communicate in our marketing and the events we do. Um, and, you know, it's about creating a fun brand that, you know, delivers. Yeah, yeah. I think I've come to the conclusion that there, there's, there isn't ever a good time for shots these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would i would agree with you at the time it's a great idea Next exactly morning, not so much. <laughs> exactly at the time yeah um and have you managed to scale your team um again going from um changing the brand or changing the drink changing everything from from lovo to twisted halo and having a co-founder to then taking on a consultant and as you say being an entrepreneur and doing everything from the branding to the marketing to the selling uh, wh where you're at now and, and what was the first hire how have you scaled that team yeah so I think um, one of the things that my dad always said to me growing up is your business is only as good as the people you employ and I think that is very true yeah. um, very very lucky that we've got a really committed team um, so internally we very much focus on the marketing and events so I've got a great marketing manager um, and we're also at the moment looking for a new marketing assistant. Um, and we've had some fantastic interns through the summer. We work with the Santander intern program, um, yep. where they part fund as well, which is a brilliant initiative for startups. Mm. Um, so internally, our focus is marketing and events. Um, I tend to do everything as well for manufacturing and all of this. We outsource a lot. So we work with third party um, warehousing and invoicing company, third party manufacturers. So the great thing is because they are the best at what they do in the industry and they've got great reputations, they can deal with our scalability. Um, mm -hmm. So, for instance, you know, we just got Morrison's on board. It meant that we have no issue with manufacturing. We have no issue with, um, you know, kind of the warehouse and logistics. Um, so, you know, I kind of looked at the business model right from the start and made sure that I was building a business that was scalable. Yeah. Um, and then for us, you know, our main internal focus is we've got um, some freelance sales guys that we work with across the country, which are fantastic. Um, and they've got a wealth of experience. And then, um, yeah, internally, we're, we're all about building the brand. Great. And is there any advice in there? If so, would you thoroughly recommend if you were starting a food or drink business? Because a Virgin startup, it's our biggest sector. It's like nearly 25% of businesses funded are food and drink. So 
every day, you know, uh, there is somebody coming to us with a, with a new concept, even if that's a, a cafe or a restaurant or a, or a new drink or a new type of food. Um, yeah. Would you would you thoroughly recommend going the, down the route of um, third parties to one, you can get to market quicker potentially, and two, you can get um, far more coverage nationally than you could ever do with without going down that route. I'd say definitely when it comes to your manufacturing. Mm. So, um, you know, if you're dealing with a well-established manufacturer, they'll no doubt they're, you know, already fully certified. They'll meet all the requirements that are needed for buyers and, you know, for legislation. So I think that's something that, um, you know, initially people think, you know, it might be better to do it myself or to try and set up my own kitchen for production and things like that. Um, For us, there's no way we'd kind of want to make the the capital investment either um, to try and do our own manufacturing. So I think that's really important and quite interesting. I know, for instance, a couple of brands, um, they were working with, you know, smaller scale manufacturing and, you know, they got a great contract to the buyer, but then um, the issue was they didn't have the right certification for manufacturing. So then it meant they were delayed and they had to go back to the drawing board. So I think that's something interesting to look at from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and if you get a new big order in, you know, can you deal with manufacturing or would you have to turn that order down? Yeah. So I think that is something worth looking at. Um, definitely. Cool. And, um, how did it feel when you got the call to say that you've been stocked in, uh, in in Morrison's then, one of the big supermarkets? It was quite surreal, actually, because I initially thought the first meeting when I went up to their head office, I thought it went okay, but I was like, oh, I don't think they're going to take us. <laughs> um, and then when I got it through, it was unbelievable. And then when I found out how many stores we were getting um, as an initial order was fantastic. So, you know, it's quite a shock. Um but then later that day, we had manufacturing issues. So it was right. like one of those things I talk about, down. the highs and the lows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, and how many no, stores did you, did you get in then uh, initially? Um, so we got um, just under 200, wow. um, which is amazing. I know yeah. another new brand that got listed at the same time, and they only got given 70. Um, so, you know, when you kind of get a buyer behind the brand that's, you know, really supportive and they can really see a gap in the market that's you know that feels probably better than anything else it's that Mm. reaffirmation that someone else can really see the opportunity as well and um what's i going to say is is that actually in the store so if somebody went to a morrison's now they could they could find twisted halo yeah yeah so we've got our full list of the morrison stores that we're stocked in um is on our website on our stockers page so twistedhalodrinks.com perfect and um yeah so you can find twisted halo in the stores it was quite surreal actually going in um and it sounds silly even though it's my own drink and i have plenty of it home but actually going in and being able to purchase (laughs) your drink in a supermarket it's surreal but felt fantastic i was trying to remember who i interviewed recently and they were saying um well they they similar thing happened but they went in and they're literally just walking up and putting one item of of their own stock on the uh at the till and getting it getting it checked through by the cashier and you know not saying this is my product but literally yeah. just that feeling of um of being able to do that because you can <laughs> yeah i think my first thought though when i took it actually to the um checkout till was oh my god i hope the barcode works <laughs> <laughs> and, and it did <laughs> yeah it did it was fine but it is those little things like you know you manufacture fifty thousand bottles of labels and you're like <gasps> what if the barcode isn't right yeah <laughs> so yeah. a lot goes through your mind 
And um, what's next then? Have you got other meetings lined up with, with other supermarkets to, to get distribution? Yep. So we've got various other meetings um, to do with increasing our distribution in the UK and also looking at export opportunities. Um, we've already kind of developed our next products and our next flavors um so you know that's all kind of in the pipeline for for down the line um and we're currently raising finance at the moment as well for expansion um so it's busy times for trusted halo sounds like but sounds uh sounds fantastic place to be yeah really is awesome well um thank you very much for taking the time out of your, your busy day to um to have a conversation with us no thank you alex So another great story um, with Jess and my takeaways from that are going all in. Um, something Gary Vaynerchuk talks about going all in on your strengths. So identifying what those strengths are and literally going all in on them, uh, accentuating your strengths and getting other people um, who are the complete opposite skill sets, people um, who have strengths where your weaknesses lie. Um, Going with your gut, so Jess knew that Lovo wasn't right. Um, huge number of learnings that she gained in that time, um, probably the same as going and doing an MBA at, um, at university that, that whole year that she spent learning that um, how to get your product to market, getting the branding right, getting your identifying who your market is, etc. Um, so going with your gut instinct when things aren't going right to be able to, to make that decision, turn things around and, and go with your gut. Um, and, and learning from your mistakes. So as I said, going with your gut, she, she learned from those mistakes and turned that into the success that uh, Twisted Halo now is and will continue to be so. Um, so as the father said, I thought a great quote to, to finish on, uh, a business is only as good as the people you employ. Um, and she's doing a great job now of scaling up a team that matches um, her dreams about where she, she wants to take Twisted Halo. Um, throughout September, we've got a whole load of crowdfunding live events going on. Jess is going to be at our live event in Bournemouth on the September the 13th, um, which you can get tickets for. Likewise, Brighton on the 21st of September. We've got some great entrepreneurs who are going to be uh, telling their stories, successful and not successful, and also hearing from the platforms themselves as to what they can offer you if you're looking at different funding options. So simply go to the startupu.co.uk website, that's startupu with a U, and Click on the event calendar and that will show you all the different events that we've got going on. As I said, September, our focus is on crowdfunding uh, and as another option to, to funding your business. So hope to see you at a live event very soon. If you'd like the opportunity to attend one of our live events with some of the world's leading entrepreneurs, just go to startupu.co.uk and click on the events calendar. That's startupu with the letter U. From there, you'll be able to see what live events we've got coming up and book a ticket from as little as £5, which includes a complimentary drink and the opportunity to network with like-minded entrepreneurs. Hope to see you soon. If you're an entrepreneur looking for funding, mentoring or support, go to startupu.co.uk. 
And if you'd like to share your startup story, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to the contact page on startupu.co.uk and we'll be in touch. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and I'd love it if you left me a review of the show. To connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook at Alex Chisnell. Until the next show, remember, don't wait. The time will never be just right. Action always beats intention. This show is brought to you by RocketSpark, who make it easy for anyone to build a great-looking website. Each month, RocketSpark offer one lucky listener the opportunity to get a website absolutely free for the next six months to do some in-market testing of a new idea. Just go to rocketspark.com slash screwitjustdoit to enter. <laughs>